0: Hey, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Ask Katie Anything. I'm your host, licensed marriage and family therapist, Katie Morton. I'm so glad that you're here. If you are looking to get your questions answered more frequently, because I know some of you say, Oh, I've been asking this question forever, um, I do answer them on a live stream every month over on my Patreon page. You can hop over to patreon.com forward slash Katie Morton and you can check out all the tiers with different rewards for different budgets. But at the, the $20 tier, I answer your questions every month in a monthly live stream. Okay. Without further ado, let's jump into this week's questions. And question number one says, Katie, can you talk about emotional neglect during the teenage years? This is a time when teens and parents are often at odds and don't necessarily support each other. So what does a healthy emotional relationship look like versus one where the parent emotionally neglects the child? My wife and I were discussing our teenage years the other day, and we realized we had no idea whether our upbringings were considered emotionally healthy. Isn't it normal for parents to not support their kids for things that they find silly or juvenile? Parents don't always want to hear or listen to their kids ramble about their teenage drama or how a friend was rude to them, right? My parents were always supportive of sports and activities, but they had strong opinions on other things. We would love to hear your thoughts. And there's a couple of comments on top of this, Um, but I do think this is going to... It's, there's a big variety around what's healthy and what's not healthy when it comes to emotional relationships with our teens. Now, the interesting thing about teenagers is usually developmentally, when we're teenagers, we start having more of a support system when it comes to our friends. And we go to them for a lot of things that maybe we don't feel okay asking our parents about. This could be you know, sexual intimacy or things like that. Maybe we have a boyfriend or girlfriend and we're trying to figure that out drinking, um, you know parties, things like that. We might go to our friends for that instead of our parents, also even maybe college stuff too because our parents might not know, right like my parents hadn't gone to college and so I went to my friends and our uh, the school counselor about that stuff. So just wanting to acknowledge the fact that when we're teenagers we actually have more support and it doesn't all come from our parents. When we're younger, that's not the case. It's often our primary caregivers or our close family. And so that's why, when it is more pertinent or more vital, that our parents offer it to us. Okay. So, that being said, it's normal for parents to listen to their children and let them ramble about teenage drama. When you said they don't always want to hear or listen, they might not want to, but parents should try to meet their children where they're at and understand what they're going through and ask follow-up questions, not just tell them to like shut up or, oh, that's so stupid or any of that, because that's super invalidating and it doesn't allow for a connection and a continued relationship with our child. Okay. Now, didn't they need to support all sorts of wild thoughts or dreams or opinions or whatever? Not necessarily that, you know, it we're having more, even though I know you, We're a teenager and our parents are adults, we're having more of an adult type of relationship where a parent can say, Oh, interesting, I hadn't thought about it that way. Or, you know, something I learned when I was your age was this. And we can have that dialogue and we can have this kind of push and pull without shutting them down, shaming them, or not wanting to listen to them at all. I feel like those are not healthy behaviors because even if a parent, because I'm okay, I'm not a parent, so I know. It's trying, and teenage years are, I would assume, incredibly trying. No one's perfect, but for as much as we can tolerate, it's important that we hear our children, that we listen to them, and we just try to gauge or better understand where they're at and what they're going through. That's how the relationship shifts and grows to exist in a better way during adulthood. Teenage years are uncomfortable so uncomfortable for the teenager and uncomfortable for parents too. But that doesn't mean we have to shut down and shut each other out. We should connect. We should ask. We should talk. We should hear what's going on. Like I always remember my mom didn't want me to go to these parties. And I told her, you know, essentially, this is just me being a manipulative teenager. <clears throat> I was like, well, I could just sneak out like my friend Rachel does and not even tell you that I'm doing this. You're lucky I'm asking <laughs> essentially <laughs> what an asshole, right? So my mom said, well, I have a a deal with you then. You can go, but you have to be home at this time. And if you're not home at this time, you can't ever go again. You know, you have to be able to trust you. If you're going to go out, I expect you to come back and, and then let me know how it went. So I go out. I think I had to be home at 11 or something like that. I get home at 11 or before 11 and I jump into bed with her and my dad and tell them about the party and what was happening and what people were doing. And this person was drinking and I didn't even know what this, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I was trusted again. And the fact that she listened to me, she heard me out. We had like an adult-ish. I mean, I was a teenager, so I was probably such an asshole, but we had a certain kind of adult type of relationship where then because I felt like she trusted me. And then I think she, because she could trust me, I did come home at the time and, you know, all the stuff and I wasn't drinking or anything like that. Then there was this shared, this mutual respect and the relationship was able to grow past child parent into, you know, kind of teenage parent and then adult parent, you know? Um, Because no matter what, even though my mom is one of my closest friends, she's also my mom, right? It's different. I'm her child. There's, a level of responsibility. I'm sure she feels that I could never understand, but that's how that's supposed to develop. I hope that that helps. I hope that gives you enough of my insights and my thoughts into this. It's normal for parents to not want us to engage in dangerous activity. However, things that are silly or juvenile, they should hear us out. And if we want to try things, they should support us. To not do that and to shut them down is is not very healthy. It's It's very it can be very harmful, and it essentially pushes your child away from you. And I would, I would wonder if you and your wife, when you were talking about this, if either of you has like a really close and loving relationship with your parents in a real way, or is it more out of uh, guilt or responsibility? Just something to think about. Okay, there was a comment on this said. Also, how would you go about changing your perception of emotionally unhealthy or ambiguous settings that feel normal due to your upbringing? Isn't it normal for parents to love you and yet not talk to you about emotional stuff that is important to you? That's not normal. Don't, don't they support your educational achievements and get call you names when they are angry because they want you to do better? No, that's called emotional abuse, actually. And the way that we go to change our perception is honestly therapy. And then, unfortunately... And there's always this period when we change, when we, when we not change, when we, we kind of like push back against what we quote unquote thought was normal, right? We grew up in one way, but we recognize that's not ideal. And so how do we go to change that um, that belief or that behavior or that we thought that was normal? How do we change our perception? And so we, we learn that it's bad. We learn that it's not correct. And then we go out into the world and unfortunately we have some relationships that our therapist keeps saying, no, those are healthy. Katie, those are healthy. And you push back and you're like, feels so uncomfortable. And they say, good, because it's different. Unfortunately when we're raised in a situation that's abusive like this, if they call you names, if they only support your educational achievements, they don't support you as a whole that's that's just very abusive to me and to not talk about emotional stuff is emotional neglect to feel like you can't come to your parent and say that really someone said something horrible to me that hurt my feelings or I get embarrassed that I don't have you know the brand name shoes and it makes me feel lesser than you know these are things we should be able to talk to our parents about now if they're not able to do that, then we're going to find ourselves, unfortunately, in relationships that are the same as that, meaning that we'll get into uh, connections with other people where they talk down to us, call us names, don't want to talk about the emotional stuff. We might find ourselves repeatedly in emotionally unavailable relationships because then they're not going to ask that of us and we don't know if we can actually give it. So it's it's all good, right? And so to get out of that is therapy, recognizing the things that aren't healthy and the things that we kind of might be more drawn to. And when we're looking for friendships or romantic relationships, we should just for a second think, Is are these old patterns? Are they emotionally unavailable? Am I picking up a project instead of a person to have in my life, right? We need to take some time to consider, you know, do they tease me, but the teasing is actually kind of hurtful, Do they not listen when I say no? Like consider these things and how these maybe reflect your upbringing. And then we have to, unfortunately, end those relationships and start new ones that maybe don't feel as comfortable up front, but we'll feel better in the long run. Okay. Now there was another add on it says, Katie, I suppose uh, that what would be considered parentification is also age dependent. At what age is it appropriate for a parent to rely on their child for emotional support? To be honest, never. (laughs) Maybe when you're an adult. Um, But when you're a child, your parents should not come to you for emotional support. I know this sounds kind of weird, but your child is not your therapist. And to treat them as such is wrong. Because the level, just think of developmentally. That's why I said maybe when you're an adult. Developmentally. Our parent is at least, I don't know, let's say at the 16 to 20 years older than us. They have a whole different level of emotional understanding. Things that they're going to be going through are not things we as children are going to be going through. Our parent is most likely going to be going through things that are just essentially out of our like understanding or scope. And so we should never rely on our child for that emotional support. Like never. We should have a therapist or a spouse or a partner or a friend or a group of friends or be in group therapy or something. To expect our child to to do that emotional labor is wrong. And we could call it, you know, abusive Um, I would call it enmeshment or creating codependence where we're so connected. There's no boundaries. It's, it's not safe or healthy. I know a lot of people do it. I had so many friends, unfortunately, even in my master's program who were like, oh, you know, I'm best friends with my mom. We've been best friends since I was little. Like she tells me everything. Like my first, her first husband after my dad was like, so you shouldn't know that. (laughs) Sure. Your parent can talk to you honestly, like, Hey, we're going to get divorced because of X, Y, or Z you shouldn't feel like your mom leans on you for like divorce advice or uh, about her relationship, you know with her partner that's not you're not able to do that. It's not okay okay um now another add on it said I suppose oh the parentification sorry <laughs> got way off topic there um parentification can happen at any time. it is age dependent because once we're not, in the same home as them. And when we're an adult, things are different. Um, but then I don't really believe parentification can happen. So parentification can happen at any age as long as we're at the home with our parent and expected to act as the parent, meaning the parent that we have isn't rising to the occasion, isn't doing the things parents can do. That's when we're parentified. And this person says, I'm in my early 20s and my mother has started coming to me as a substitute for therapy. No talking about a traumatic childhood or sleep issues, stress, et cetera, while there not being any room for talking about what's going on in my life. That's the problem. It's not a relationship. It's She's dumping. My therapist thinks I've always been in that role. I would be suspicious of that as well. Um, But I'm not entirely sure when it started. I was always trying to be responsible. There you have it. Children, when we're growing up, shouldn't feel this intense level of responsibility. Period. We should slowly learn, like hey, I'm responsible for my actions. If I hit a kid at school, I'm going to get in trouble and my mom's going to ask me about it and wonder why I did it. That's the level of responsibility you have as a child. Mom's tells me not to lose my lunchbox, so I put it back in my locker and I make sure I bring it home. Your responsibility as a child is like, don't get into fights or cause trouble at school. Show up to school and do the school thing and don't lose shit. I mean, that's Kind of it at the beginning, right? We're just learning. We should not be responsible for uh people feeling good, for the home being clean, other than like I pick up my toys or something, you know. We're learning about responsibility as we grow up. We shouldn't feel like we are always trying to be responsible. Said so I was trying to be a good kid, easy to care for, because I sensed my parents were stressed. Yeah. And I didn't want to burden them. I've often ended up as a therapist for my friends or flatmates, and I'm actually trying and actually training to be one currently. Ooh, okay am I or was I parentified? Yes. How do I find out how, and how do I find out and how do I stop this relationship pattern? I often feel like I don't have a right to set boundaries because otherwise I'll never have any friends. That's the kicker. So when we are parentified as a child and we don't feel it's okay for us to engage with the world with reckless abandon, let's say, getting to just be, we don't get to just learn make mistakes, be an irresponsible child sometimes, right? Then we end up always being the parent in all of our relationships, which is kind of what's happened to you where you're like, oh, I don't feel I have a right to set boundaries. Meaning for some reason, we have tied up our self-worth in our ability to care for others. And that might've been the only time we got actual attention from our parents, because if there was a lot of tension and maybe they were getting divorced or having issues, when we were listening to them share, that's the only connection that we got We probably never were able to share what was going on with us. And so we created this relationship dynamic where we're like, I'm always the giver. They're always the taker. It's not okay for me to take. Now, we're going to have to practice setting boundaries in general. And I know you you feel like you don't have a right to set them. I want to push back here because I don't know if what you're calling a friendship is actually a friendship. You're saying you don't think you'll have any friends. Are they really friends? Or are they emotional vampires? Do they ever ask you how you are? Do they know anything about you? Or are you their therapist? Which is probably why you were drawn to my my craft, to the psychology realm, because you're used to being the caretaker. You're used to being the one that listens. It's like the role you've already been playing your entire life. And so it would behoove you now to acknowledge this and to push back against it. It's going to be so uncomfortable, but you can do it because if you don't, it's actually kind of worrisome to me or a little dangerous for you to become a therapist because the lack of boundaries could get really taxing on you and make it unhealthy for your patients. And so I would encourage you next time someone calls and wants to like dump a lot of shit onto you. Here's my challenge. Here's my homework. I want you to say, I, I wish I could listen to you. I'm so sorry. I just don't have time. I'm running out the door. Can I talk to you later? And we actually end the call. If they push back and they're like, but I'm, and say like, I understand. I'm so sorry. It's just bad timing. Okay. Or, or if you don't think you can have that, maybe we don't pick up either, or that's your homework. I want you to start doing things like that. I want you to start being less available only because, no one should be able to think that they can just call you whenever, and you're at their beck and call, and you're you're dependent on them. We need to start placing some healthy space between us and what what our friends are asking us for, and when they start talking about them it's okay to pipe up and talk about us. That would be kind of my next challenge. We're gonna to have to start working this muscle so that it's incredibly strong by the time that we become a therapist because there's going to be so many times your patients push boundaries, try to get a hold of you um, if you deal ever like I do with uh, people with borderline personality disorder, there's a level of manipulation to get their needs met and that manipulation can look like them um, like using their struggles as a way to like get me to call them back right away. I don't know if this makes sense, but it's kind of like, they'll try to say like, they'll try to threaten, um, you know, harm and things like that. And so I have to have conversations about this. I have to set boundaries. I have to do safety plans and here's what we're going to do. And you know what I mean? There's going to be instances where things are tricky and things are going to be difficult for you. If we don't feel okay, saying no, and we don't feel okay. Holding that boundary. I know it's not normal for you. I know you never got to do it as a kid, but we're going to have to relearn how to engage in relationships. And if your friends don't allow for boundaries, then they're not friends. I know that's a hard pill to swallow, but it's the truth. Friendship should be ebb and flow, give and take. There are always going to be times when one of us is giving more, taking more than the other, but it shouldn't be always. It should be this like, oh, they were going through a rough patch for a couple of months and now it's my turn. I'm going through a rough patch, right? And we have this up and down, back and forth, give and take. That's a friendship. Anything else is just them treating you like you're that you're their therapist or being complete emotional vampires or both. Okay. Now there was another question that said, additionally, how does one become a better parent one day? I think overall, the thing that would improve us being a parent is just being number one, aware of our own bullshit. What stuff do you struggle with? Get into therapy, figure it out, do a workshop or workbook. I'm doing that. The artist's way book. And as woo-woo as maybe some of you think it is, it's really helpful to at least, if you can't afford therapy, you know, maybe pick up that book at like a used bookstore, or go to the library and pick it up. Um, but doing that internal work to figure out what your hangups are. What are, you, what are you getting caught up on? what is What are you struggling with? In my uh, my memberships over on YouTube, I offer for five bucks a month, two journal prompts a week. So that can get you going too. That could be a way to help you figure out what's what your issues are. So number one, acknowledge your own bullshit. Number two, work to change that. And yes, I know that's a big number (laughs) two. That's a funny phrase. (laughs) Just kidding. Poop jokes. Um, But that's a a big order. I know it's a tall order. Um, But that means us recognizing, hey, maybe I'm not that comfortable with my emotions and maybe I should improve that so I can talk to my children about how they feel. Like it's okay to be upset. We all get upset, you know, but when you throw things at your sister, that's not okay. You could hurt her, right? We can, we need to tell people we're upset. We need to explain it. Those are the conversations we should be having with our children. Yes, I know children throw tantrums. Yes, I know children are difficult. Also, I know it's hard to be a parent. You're sleep deprived. Money can be tight, but we have to do that work in order to become a better parent. Okay. Let's move on to question number two. And this question says, Hey, Katie." When is the right time to enter the dating game as opposed to waiting to heal your childhood trauma? It seems to be a popular it seems to be popular advice not to date until you've healed. To some extent your um to some extent your trauma and oh sorry this is just written bizarrely. It seems to be popular advice not to date until you've healed to some extent. Your trauma and are ready to enter a healthy relationship. Do you agree with that? If so, how do you know when it's the right time? I'm avoidant, as in attachment, not disorder. Every time I dip my toe into the dating game, I quickly find an excuse why this guy isn't the right one for me. I never liked anyone enough to be willing to make an effort or even try dating. I don't feel butterflies in my stomach or anything like that, although I am quite disconnected from my emotions in general. I find it hard to motivate myself to date, despite longing for the things that one would expect in a caring, mature, equal relationship and wanting a family in a distant, distant, distant future. Why should I start dating? If I shouldn't, what should I do in the meantime? For context, I'm a female. I'm 25. I'm straight. I've never had any romantic or sexual relationship experience. I grew up without a father in a completely female household. I'm in therapy, but life has been a lot lately. So I've been working on other stuff. I am comfortable around men as long as there's no romantic or sexual vibe and no, oh, and no religious abuse. Okay. So Good questions. Now let's start at the top. What's the right time to enter the dating game as opposed to waiting to heal your childhood trauma? I think as long as we're out of a reactive state and have coping skills or ways to bring, to calm ourselves down, that's okay. Now, the reason I say less reactive is because I don't want you to potentially get re-triggered or re-traumatized or overwhelmed all the time. I would never want to send someone out into that situation. That's just not healthy. So if you find yourself extremely hypervigilant, if someone touched your back, like if, if you met your date at a restaurant, let's say, and you're waiting to be seated for your reservation. And they say, follow me. And your date puts his hand or her hand on your back. Are you going to like come unglued? if the answer is yes or maybe, we're not quite ready. I want you to be at a place where you can engage. It doesn't mean we have to be able to have sex or talk about our trauma and not have emotional response. We just have to be able to date in a real way. We have to be able to be there and not be like looking around us or not be um, automatically assuming the worst of the person, all of that. We have to be less reactive. So that's really what I think needs to take place before we engage. Now, Is it going to be harder to date while we're still processing our trauma? Of course, because we're going to let someone in while we're doing this like really taxing and potentially incredibly vulnerable feeling work. So there is a level of difficulty that may come with it. If we wanted to wait longer, it might not be as difficult. That's just kind of how things go. But the belief that you have to be completely healed before you start dating, I don't fully agree with it. I do think that we should be working on ourselves to have any kind of semblance of a healthy relationship. But again, it's more about the reactivity and the ability to participate in dating. Can we tell someone about ourselves? Do we feel comfortable sharing what we do or how we're, what we do for a living, how we're doing, friends we have? Do we feel like we can have that conversation without dissociating, without panicking, without wondering or being stressed about, you know, when do I tell them about my mental illness? Blah. And then we like can't even be present, right? Can we just engage? If you can engage in it, and if you, like the things I talked about, them putting your hand on your back, or maybe grabbing your hand, or what if they come in for a kiss? If that stuff's going to send you through the roof, you're not ready to date. I'm not saying that we have to allow someone to kiss us, or we have to allow them to, but things can happen just out of the agreement of going on a date. They can think, oh, it's going to be okay for me to like grab their hand or loop arms with them or touch their back because it's, you're engaging in a romantic and sexual man. Like that's what dating is. If that's not right and we don't feel right about it, then we want to work on things so we can get to a point where we feel okay about it. And in your case, this avoidant kind of attachment feeling is going to make it a little bit harder like, like you said, I don't feel butterflies on my stomach or anything because your body's like on high alert, right? It's like, oh, I don't feel safe doing this. So we're going to have to come up with some coping skills for that. But I don't think there's anything wrong with trying to date. And if you are wanting that kind of connection, that kind of companionship, you're wanting, maybe you said wanting a family in the future, you know, it is something that we should start talking about in therapy, things that we should start working on. Our resources should be catered to that in some respects so that we have that kind of ability to engage with it now, because it's going to take time to find the right person, right? You're only 25, but I don't want you to feel, if you wanted to start a family, I don't want you to feel rushed because unfortunately, you know, there's a time limit on like how long we can usually have kids easily. So I want you to feel like you can engage at any time. And that's how I would focus your, your work in therapy. I know there's other, you said life's been a lot lately. So maybe we don't try dating just yet, but we talk about it when, you know we feel a little bit calmer and start to build up some of those resources and ways of calming our system down okay you'll get there um i just always want to caution i think the reason last thoughts the reason that people say we shouldn't date until we're better like till we're healed is because sometimes we have a a i don't know if it's i don't want to call it like an urge but it's kind of we will feel the need or the want, maybe we don't even recognize it, like this innate like knee-jerk reaction of wanting to take the person that we're dating and put them in the hole that maybe our parents left or our abusive ex left or something. We want to like take them and fill a void, to fill a void in our life instead of seeing them as an addition to what we have, adding on, not putting in. I don't know if that makes sense, but I think that's why a lot of people say we should wait, because we have to be really acutely aware of that urge when we engage in dating, you know, in general, if we haven't healed that wound, because it's going to be, it's going to feel so much easier to be like, oh, well, this person, it's the reason people overly attach to their therapists all the time. It'll be so much easier if this person just, I'll just treat them like my mom or, oh, they're, but they're the ones that like hear me and they see me. Finally, somebody, I'm going to put them in that, that mom void in my life, Right or that dad void or whatever. And we can, we can find ourselves attempting to do that in our relationships as well. So we have to be careful about it. Okay. Okay. Moving on to question three says, Hey Katie, I love your channel. Oh yay. says. So this question is very embarrassing for me. I'm recently divorced and I know sex was a main contributor. I like the idea of sex, but the physical act of it makes me cringe and become very uncomfortable. After a long stretch of absolutely no sexual desire over a year, I've begun to pleasure myself again. Yay. Okay. It's coming back. It's always been what I'm most comfortable with when it comes to sex. That's interesting. Here's my issue. When I masturbate, I have thoughts of my therapist. I'm not gay. At least I don't think so. The thoughts of her are not sexual thoughts. I'm not thinking of being able to hold eye contact with her. The tight hug she gives me after some of our set sessions, the understanding and calming feeling I get when I talk to her. Help. What is this? A little background. I have some indirect sexual trauma from my childhood and social anxiety disorder. And please don't say, talk to your therapist about what's happening. I absolutely cannot. Okay. Fair. I know it's very embarrassing for a lot of people. I actually have a video and this was in the comments below this too. That's why you guys are just so great. But I have a video about sexual transference or erotic transference. And I think it's entitled help. I have a crush on my therapist or something like that. Look at that video. Okay. I talk about why that can happen. I'll give you a brief rundown here, but there's a little more I want to dig into now we can sexually transfer, we can have sexual transference onto our therapist because they could be the only person that's ever shown us love and support. And if we had any sexual abuse growing up, we can often assume that when we feel supported or we feel seen or any of that, that always comes with sex. And so love looks like sex. Connection looks like sex. We don't know the two separate. We can't just have sex. Does that make sense? And so when a therapist shows us some of those things that we so need feeling seen and heard and validated, we automatically think sexual thoughts or romantic thoughts sometimes even too, thinking that that's the only way this can show up for us and that we can't have platonic love and support. Okay? So that's in a nutshell what sexual transference can be, but look up or erotic transference. um, Look it up. I have it on my YouTube channel. Now, I want to talk about you only feeling comfortable masturbating there's something in there i know i hopefully at some point you'll feel okay bringing this up with your therapist but at least maybe telling them that you know you, you got divorced and you know sex was a contributor you hadn't had sex in over a year i don't know if you even feel comfortable talking about that and i have like questions about that because if we don't feel comfortable talking about sex there's always this, like the therapist to me is like, if we can't talk about it, we shouldn't be having it. Okay. Because we have to figure out what the fuck is going on. Right. If I can't talk about a, a basic human need, right. We're, we're like primed and created for like procreation. So wanting to have sex exists, especially like teens, twenties, thirties, you know, for a long chunk of our life, there should be some kind of thoughts of sex. And I know people are like, Katie, the aromantics and asexual, it's not what I'm talking about right here. We're talking about engaging in masturbation on our own and feeling better about that. And that's the one way. So there's something to do with engaging with other people, right? There's that disconnect. And I don't know if it's a vulnerability issue. If it's, It sounds like maybe because you said you had sexual abuse, right? Um, uh, sexual trauma. That might be where it's coming from. I want you to be curious about that. If you feel safe, could we journal about this? Since we don't want to bring it up with our therapist, could we pose some of these questions? Like, what would it mean to me to have sex with someone else? Have I ever enjoyed sex with someone else? Do I feel free to speak up about what I like and don't like in the bedroom? What is it about masturbation that I enjoy? Be honest. There's no judgment here. If no one's going to read this. You can tear it up afterwards. I just want you to start thinking about it. I want to dig into it. Does this have a religious trauma background? Do we grow up in purity culture? Maybe. Do we think, have we been told sex is dirty and bad our whole life? I don't know. We need to be curious about it. Is it connected to that sexual trauma? Is it religious trauma based? Is it my own um difficulty with vulnerability or letting people in. Is it do I not enjoy it because I haven't spoken up about what I like and don't like? Do I not know what I like and don't like? You know, think about these things and give yourself an opportunity to just explore your sexuality. I, I know this sounds kind of crazy, but I think for a lot of us, we don't ever take that time. We have these judgments or beliefs about sex and what it would mean for us to even explore or think about it, especially if we have any sexual abuse. Then we or can be very uncomfortable with anything sexual. So give yourself an opportunity to explore. There's no expectation of coming up with a certain answer or anything. There's no judgments if you um, are interested in trying something, I encourage you to, you know, go purchase the item or try the thing with yourself. See if you like things. Let's explore and come and figure out where this is coming from. Now, when it comes to the masturbation and thinking of your therapist, I think it's that connection and not knowing that we can have, like you said, like the, the tight hugs and the feeling that she's uh understanding and, and it's calming those are things that you're desiring not sexually but there's some for some reason that's a connection in your brain so let's be curious about it okay journal about it ask yourself those questions i want you to you know if you feel safe journaling about like that indirect sexual abuse what happened what messages did you receive from it What did you take away from that because that might also give you kind of a path to the answer um I hope that helps. I know there's no like direct answer, but everybody's situation is different. There's a lot of places this could come from. I suspect indirect sexual trauma um, is to blame. And potentially, if we have like purity culture, religious trauma, it could come from that too. Now, there was a comment on this as an as an add-on. Is it okay to talk about masturbation with your therapist? Of course. I was sexually abused and sex is something I want to be able to do, but I'm too scared to do it. It ruined my last relationship. Someone mentioned trying to get comfortable with myself in that way first. Yes. Thoughts. I'm scared and even embarrassed to bring it up in therapy. I think we can start. Sometimes we can start a different way. We don't have to come right in with masturbation if that's a little too much to talk about. Instead, we could say, you know, I've I was sexually abused if you have opened up that already. Be like, due to the sexual abuse, you know, sex has always been something that I want to be able to do, but I'm too scared to do it. And it's like it could be traumatizing, right? And bring that up with your therapist first because it's an honest conversation. It's not so direct maybe, and it might be another way in, Um, or even just bringing up your last relationship. I think it was ruined because I just am too scared to have sex. But I want to. I don't know if you even feel comfortable saying that. This might be something that, again, we kind of work on on our own first, like journaling it out, even saying it out loud to ourselves, maybe in our car where we have a little privacy so that we can get used to saying these things. Because especially if we have like these these beliefs or this past trauma associated with sexual intimacy, then even bringing it up can feel very overwhelming. It's like, it's so triggering. I feel like we're right back there in that situation when things are happening or can just feel too, oh, it's just too much. It's, it's emotionally charged, right? And it's not something we in, are able to enjoy because it's so emotionally charged and because somebody took advantage when we were younger. So give yourself some time. Now, I think um, if you wanted to attempt masturbation on your own, I would want to make sure that you have, because think of, instead of if masturbation is even triggering, you guys hearing me say it, consider I'm just saying triggering event or triggering thing. I want to be able to do this triggering thing again, and I can't. So we need to have resources to calm our system down so we can do that triggering thing again, right? And the best way to do that is to figure out what calms us down. Is it a full body shake? Is it breathing exercises? Is it uh, journaling? Is it talking with a friend? Is it putting ourselves in our happy place? What is it? Do we have to count colors? Do we need some grounding techniques? Um, Think about that. Let's take some time and figure that out. And then utilize those tools or those grounding techniques or those resources when we try to engage in it. Okay. And when we try to do that triggering thing, make sure it's in a place that feels safe or neutral, right? And give yourself some time to come around to it, to get used to the fact that we're going to keep trying this. Will it happen the first time very long? Probably not. We might not even get to the point of doing it, but we'll think about it. We might, Oh, it gets too much. I want you to pay attention to how you feel. Are we feeling the overwhelm or not? When we get to like a, so let's say zero is like I'm asleep. 10 is like I'm having a panic attack or dissociating. I want you to stop engaging in masturbation around like a five or six and then calm yourself down. Okay. And kind of do that. It's like working a muscle and that should help. Okay. Okay. And when you feel comfortable, please both of you bring it up with your therapist when you feel okay. Question number four says, Hey there, Katie. How do you do? says, I got a question. I'm currently working on childhood trauma with my therapist and she's letting me kind of take the lead so that I decide the tempo, but I'm just so unsure if what I'm doing is right. Should I avoid situations that trigger traumatic memories or not? Should I fight dissociation or let it happen? At least sometimes I've asked him about this and he doesn't give me a straight answer. He's a great therapist. So I really think he's doing the right thing, but it's just weird to me. Yeah, I understand. I guess maybe there isn't a straight answer. The whole process is so hard and confusing and I'm just not sure what to do. Thanks so much. Of course. Okay. Now we need, okay. I like that he's letting you take the lead. I would let him know that we're struggling to know if what we're doing is right. And I would just ask these questions to him also, but I'm going to give you my thoughts. Okay. And I'm saying this because they know you better. Okay. I only know what this question tells me and your therapist knows so much more. So bring it up with them. Okay. Now we don't have to avoid uh, situations that trigger traumatic memories, as long as we have coping skills or those resources to help calm us back down. Okay. This could mean in therapy, um, you know, we play with silly putty. We count colors around the room. Maybe our therapist knows to come and like put a hand on our back or just sit next to us. Maybe not. I don't know maybe we get up into a body shake. Maybe we make eye contact with our therapist and they change the subject and talk about something different, whatever it is. We need to have some of those resources, those happy places to go, those things to do to manage the upset, that could, the triggering event, right? We should talk about the traumatic memories a little bit, but if we get overwhelmed, like I said, we'd be like five or six, like I was talking with the previous question. And then we need to calm ourselves down. I don't want you getting to a 10 all the time. That's not helpful. We're not actually processing anything then if we're in panic or dissociation, okay? Um, And fighting the dissociation, I would fight it as often as you feel you can. It's going to win sometimes, and it's okay for it to happen sometimes. Sometimes we're too exhausted. Um, Sometimes when we go to therapy, we're like, this emotional chow chow, and we just want to pull out. I want you to pay attention to that. And I want you to journal about that after the fact. When you come back to, I want you to write about why you wanted to let that happen this time. Because the thing about dissociations for a lot of people, they're like, it's the only coping skill I have. And I'm there to tell you, it doesn't really help you cope with anything, but I get it. And it might be the the best we have right now. And until we beef up those other resources or coping skills, it's going to win out sometimes because those other ones just aren't going to do the trick. But we we have to get better at noticing again, when a 5 we're at a five or a six, Maybe it behoove you to write that whole list of zero is asleep, 10 is dissociated or panicked. What are the steps in between? What does that feel like for you? Be as honest as you can, because then that helps us have more emotional intelligence so we can use those skills earlier. So fight the dissociation most of the time, but it's going to win out. Then that's okay. There's no judgment there. Just know that there's no processing or um, really no helpful things can happen in therapy when we're dissociated. And I think that's really it. And there isn't, there isn't really a straight answer. Like I said, ask him and tell him what, the questions you asked me because they'll know you better. But those are my thoughts and I hope that that helps. Okay. Let's move on to question number five. This question says, hi there. Last week, my therapist said that I've reached a plateau in therapy and that I need to look for another therapist. What? To help me because she's done all she can do. Shut the fuck up. What? What? This came out of nowhere. Of course. Yeah. And I was shocked to say the least. Since then, I feel great loss. Of course you do. I'm so sorry. And I've been struggling. How do I handle the loss of my therapist? She was the first one that I trusted and we've been together for two years. What in the world? I have a great deal of trauma in my past and I just don't know what to do. Please help. Okay. First of all, I'm so sorry this is so fucked up. I mean, you've been seeing them for two years, so I would assume they were good at some point for you, right? And helpful. And they're the first one that you trusted. Okay. So many thoughts. First of all, what the fuck? Uh, As a therapist, they should know, patients plateau all the time. And you have to acknowledge it in session and talk about how you're going to get out of it. And usually then I give them like another couple of months, like three to four months. We talk about it again if they continue to plateau, then that's when, like, I mean, I know that sounds like a long time, maybe it depends on the patient, but you've been seeing them for two years. So this is probably what I would do. It'd be like a good four, maybe six months of us trying to fight this plateau before I might refer you out or maybe get something additional. Like, I think you need EMDR or maybe we should try a group on top of seeing me. This is not okay. This is technically patient abandonment to say she's done all she can do. What? I'm so sorry. Um, and the fact that you need to look for another therapist they should be giving you referrals. We're legally obligated. I think it's to give you three or four. I always give four, but I think it's only three that were required. And they have to make sure they're taking new patients. There's all sorts of like legal and ethical issues in- associated with this. Uh, patient abandonment, not giving you referrals. Um, and I'd assume or hope, fingers crossed, this would be part of the patient abandonment that they gave you sessions until you find someone else because they should give you like a month or two, maybe three. I think the most I've ever given someone is like, I don't know, 90 days or so. Um, Yeah. I mean, it just, this is shitty and it's not okay. And I'm so sorry. Um, Yeah. I don't, you, you can file a complaint saying patient abandonment, and note this stuff. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Um, I don't know why they do this. I don't, like I said, patients plateau all the time. That's life. We have tough times. We get better and then we kind of hang and then we usually hopefully get better and we might get worse. You know, it's not, therapy not like A to B to C to D, you're done, poof. Um, something else must be going on. What the fuck? I don't get it. It doesn't make sense. It's legally and ethically very dangerous for them to do what they did. And I don't know why you would ever do that. Um, yeah. So I'm so sorry. I would encourage you to try to find someone else and that would be where I'd process that loss. (sighs) I'm just so sorry. I wish I had better advice. This is shitty. This shouldn't happen. That's not okay. They need to give you referrals. You, they should be titrating your sessions and giving you time to find another therapist. Uh, after two years, this is definitely patient abandonment and you could, uh, Put a strike against their license. Not that you want to, but you could. That's not okay. I'm so sorry. Um, but yeah, I hope you find somebody better. Okay. Moving on to question number six. Again, I'm sorry. I have such a shitty answer. I just don't. There's it doesn't make any sense. There's no reason. I'm so sorry. We need to find you someone else. Um, yeah. Fuck. Ugh. I'm sorry. Some therapists suck at their jobs. You guys. <clears throat> Let's move on to question six. It says hi, Katie. Could I have dissociated most of my childhood but still remember some details? Yes. I've got childhood trauma and have struggled most of my life with it. I'm 16. For context, I've had a, I have had a psychology assignment where I had to create a timeline of my childhood and identify times where I learned certain things, like counting to 10 and when I made a new friend, et cetera, things to do with lifespan development. But I couldn't remember anything past the age of six. Wow, because six usually only remember, start remembering things at like five, sometimes four. But that's when like long-term memories form. That's interesting. All that came to mind were scenes of my trauma. I was sexually abused for eight years by my uncle, and I still can't talk about it. I'm so sorry. I started to contemplate whether or not I dissociated most of my childhood, but I keep shutting that idea down, minimizing it because I can't remember. But, blah, 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 sorry, because I can remember vague details like holidays I went on during that time, although it's hard to define the specifics. I really struggle with what happened to me and constantly have intrusive thoughts and flashbacks. Can this happen? Can you dissociate yet remember some things? Is this even dissociation or just my mind shutting out other moments from my childhood that I should otherwise remember? Would this explain why I struggle to clearly remember what my uncle did to me and why I struggle? Please help. So sorry for the long question. I hope it made sense. P.S. You've helped me so much. Keep doing what you're doing. Oh, of course. I'm glad I could be here. And there's a few, actually just one comment on this. Now, yes, we can dissociate off and on or throughout all of the traumatic event. And it went on for eight years. So I wouldn't be surprised if that whole eight-year period is just like wiped. And I would assume you remember bits and pieces of other things because you possibly came out of dissociation a little bit, if not at all, you know, like maybe all the way out um, somewhere in there. Like you said, on vacation, I assume your uncle wasn't there. makes us feel a little bit less uh, at risk or under threat. So less need for that dissociation to happen right so we kind of pull out of it a little bit. And then we have some memories. Now part of PTSD, so that's dissociation as a whole. Now PTSD can come along with difficulty uh, you know dissociation and struggle to remember the traumatic like any of the traumatic events or even the uh, events surrounding the traumatic events, which if this was happening like with consistency that's why you're not going to remember what he did to you. It's it's very common. Um could could be just so you're aware, could be that we dissociated so the memory doesn't exist or it could be that it we do have memory, we just repressed it. And working in therapy and finding ways to soothe our system to do it at your don't feel like you have to rush, go at a pace that feels okay. But we that's how we'll retrieve that, okay? Um so that would be why you struggle to remember what he did and why you even have a tough time. Um that's I think that's why you're you know, you dissociate, but you remember some things because we can kind of come out of it a little bit or all the way and then go right back in. I've had patients tell me their dissociation lasts for minutes, hours, days, weeks, months, years. Everybody's different. And I think when it lasts for those long periods of time, there are times when it's lighter or lesser than than it was, you know, the day before or the week before. We might come out for a short period, but we go right back in. And so it's almost like we don't even recognize that we've come out of it. Does that make sense? I hope so. And so, um, it could be dissociation, it could be repressed memories, it could be both. We, we won't know until we start kind of trying to work on it. And I know that's hard. And But I encourage you to reach out and speak up, okay? Now, there was a comment on this that says, howdy, Katie from Texas. Howdy. I was diagnosed with DID in 2016, and I also remember very little of my childhood because my parts hold the memories. Of course, that's why we split. And I'll talk a little bit about that if people don't understand. I get frustrated when I look at pictures of myself when I was younger, and I can't even remember it. I've seen two therapists because I feel like I can't get everything out in one session. Oh, you have to see two therapists. They can't fit you in for double sessions or two sessions a week. Huh? Okay. I feel like I'm on a hamster wheel when it comes to processing. Sometimes my sessions get hijacked by one of my parts because of the dissociation When I was a child, I feel like the abuse didn't even happen to me at all. There are a few parts that struggle with an eating disorder. Lately, I've been struggling with eating at all or very little, and I'm not sure why the eating disorder has resurfaced. I also got diagnosed with pre-diabetic and my new doctor doesn't know about my, Oh, Oh, doesn't know that my eating disorder is part of my past. I have passed out a few times at work with my blood sugar being so dangerously low because I haven't eaten in a while. My question is how do I go about dealing with with the eating disorder if I personally in my system don't have it? Also, if you could talk, um, please help me understand why my different parts deal with things like eating disorder, self harm, and others don't. Thanks for everything you do. Okay. Now, let's quickly, so for those who don't understand DID, it stands for dissociative identity disorder. And essentially, I like to think of dissociation on a spectrum. And when we dissociate over and over for very intensive traumas repeatedly, uh, dissociate maybe for years and years of our life, in order to protect us, our body splits into parts. Meaning I might have uh, the childlike version of me is very common. The inner child Katie is a version and my voice might change and I might act different. I might even like start talking kind of childlike, like maybe I don't pronounce my R's. They make them W's. So it's like, I'm twined to do that. You know, I might do that like little childlike things. I might give myself a lisp. I don't know. Um, then there might be the protector part of me where I'm very gruff and I'm aggressive and I don't put up with anybody's shit. And I might smoke cigarettes, even though the regular me doesn't. Um, Yeah. I have a totally different persona and this can go on and there can be tons of different. I'm just giving you random versions. Everybody's going to be different, but we essentially break into these parts to kind of help compartmentalize the trauma and to allow us to be maybe the person that we didn't feel we could be, especially the protector version I might've never felt safe to be the protector version. And so the splitting up of the parts allows me to like protect the wounded little inner child me. I can do that. I like can shut down one and the other one will resurface. Okay. Now, because of that, some parts of you take on more wounds than others, right? Our protector doesn't take those on usually. Um, They could, it just depends. Again, everybody's different. But what I see mostly is kind of that wounded part of us is the one that usually uses some of the unhealthy coping skills. Um, And that eating disorder and self-harm, those can be part of that because they're the ones that help us cope. They're the ones that help us deal. They're the ones that feel the most pain. The others aren't aware, right? Because every part's a little different. And so the parts that usually feel the pain are the ones that do the most coping. And that's kind of why that happens. And so I would encourage you to see if you can get into more than one session a week with those therapists. You can just have one, but that's fine. Um, If if not, it's okay. I'm glad. Kudos to you for reaching out and getting more support. Um, What was the question here? Why my different parts deal with? Okay. I talked about that and talked about DID. And I think that is it. And the eating disorder probably resurfaced because of, you know, trying to cope with other things eating disorders are coping skills. We always have to think what is feeling out of control for me right now. What is feeling like I just don't have the wherewithal to deal with, or has my stress gone up or, you know, triggers increased. That's why those things come back out. Okay. Okay. Let's move on to question number seven. This question says, Katie, I was watching my favorite show station 19. And I have to admit you guys, I have not watched this show, but I realize I relate so much with one of the characters, Maya. Maya is someone who has a lot of childhood trauma, and the only outlet she knows is exercise. She does this to the point where she gets herself injured, hides it from everybody she loves, and she keeps saying she's fine and then doing the same thing again the next day until she ends up in a hospital bed and almost dies. She keeps pushing everybody away because she's too scared to open up and be vulnerable, even to her own wife. She keeps hiding from her own emotions and pushing them down way too deep. Now her wife and almost all of her friends are leaving her because she keeps pushing them away, and all she can feel is anger and sadness and she doesn't know how to cope. She doesn't know how to let people in. And the result is she ends up all alone. And it makes me scared, like actually really scared, because I feel like I am Maya. I realize I'm doing literally all the above. I keep pushing my feelings down. I don't know how to open up. I don't know how to be vulnerable. I don't know how to cope with my emotions. I, en- I even did the ending up in a hospital bed almost dying part. Like every single choice that she's put up with in the show, every single one, I feel like I would have made the exact same choice. And it terrifies me. I'm just so scared that everyone I love will leave me and I'll never find true love because of my own actions. So I feel very scared and sad, but also I'm really, really angry at myself for not knowing how to do these simple things. I've been in therapy with three different therapists for over a year, but I stopped a couple of months ago because I didn't. it didn't help me. Probably because I just couldn't open up. Now I've decided to try again. I just don't know how. Like, where do I start? And maybe... Um, and do you maybe have any ideas as to where this is coming from? Thank you so much for all your help. It really means a lot. Okay. Um, now, we have this great example of something that we feel we relate to so much. Why don't we tell our therapist about this? I've had patients tell me books were related, to, that so related to them, uh, TV shows, movies, movies, um, Something in the news, and I, as any good therapist, d- looks into it. And I'm, and if I don't have the time to look into it, I'll at least ask you, what is it about them that you connect with? You just read them this question. Stuff everything down, push everybody away, cannot open up to anything. Hide my emotions, you know. Blah blah blah. blah. We don't have to know what we, how we're going to fix things. We just have to tell our therapist what we don't like that's going on. And that's what you don't like that's going on. You're pushing everybody away. And if we let them know that that's our worry, and we're so afraid that anybody we love is just going to leave us, fear of abandonment, right? So we're like, it's better off if I'm just alone. It's like, instead of engaging, I'll be alone, but I don't want to be alone. Fuck, ah, right? We can feel trapped. And I would encourage you to find a therapist that either does DBT or is attachment-based. Okay? Okay. Even a trauma specialist could be really helpful too. Um, I don't think it's necessary, but any one of those. And I know trauma you need someone who's trauma informed because I think you said that she has a lot of trauma and you have a lot of trauma too. I believe so. But anyways, If you don't have trauma, forget about the trauma comment. But DBT and attachment-based work is going to help you manage this intense fear of abandonment that's coming up for you and this urge to push people away to protect ourselves from the the potential future pain that could happen, right? So I want you to give it a go and I want you to give it time. Now you've seen three different therapists over a year. I'm assuming these are different time periods. I want you to try a therapist out for six months, okay? Just commit to me, you'll give it six months. Once you feel like you like, you can do a couple sessions with them and then be like, that's not a good fit. That's fine. But I worry that we're doing the same thing with therapists that we're doing in life. And to expect us to open up and share and things to move forward right away, like you said, it didn't work for you. It's going to take a little longer. And yes, I know that sucks and I'm sorry, but that's what you're really needing to work on. So therapy is going to move a little slower for you at the beginning. We have to be patient with ourselves. We're learning a new tool. We don't know how to open up. We're afraid people are going to leave us. If I let them in, they're going to leave me. So many triggers in therapy for you. That's why DBT, attachment based, or trauma specialist is going to be helpful. And they'll be able to help you manage that kind of overwhelm that we're feeling that causes us to run the other way. If we don't work on it, it's going to hang around, it's going to drive us crazy. So give yourself an opportunity to open up. And if you can just read them this question, or give it to them or ask if you can email them what you're struggling with. Tell them this just exactly as you told me. It's incredibly helpful. There's so much information here. If you were my patient, I'd be highlighting things. I'd be like hiding emotions, pushing them deep. Okay. I'm afraid that if, uh, that everyone I love will leave me and I'll never find true love because of my own actions. All there's so much here and the fear, this, how scared you are. That's all helpful for me. If I was going to work with you to figure out what we're trying to make happen right? And essentially what it is, is we need to figure out how to help you cope. And I think you're just so full of everything that we get dysregulated all the time. So we need more skills. We need more tools. We need uh, coping skills to help calm us down. There's so much stuff that we could work on. So share this with your therapist and let's find someone. Let's give them a real go, like a real chance to help us because it just takes time, unfortunately. And we, because that's our main issue, therapy is just going to be a little slower up front. Okay. Hang in there. There's a comment on this as I have an add on to this question. If I have tried many therapists and many styles of therapy without much benefit, what's my next step? I started my journey in 2017. I've worked with four therapists, two psychiatrists and three dietitians. Only one was helpful an eating disorder dietitian. It is hard when it comes to therapists because I feel my problems are too vast and complicated. I have a traumatic childhood, bulimia, depression, anxiety, and have been severely suicidal for the past three years. I feel hopeless. What can I do? So if you tried many styles of therapy and many therapists, I unfortunately we've tried four. I know that feels like a lot. I encourage you to keep trying until you feel that click. Do consultations so you don't have to pay for all these sessions. Um, most therapists do them 15 to 30 minutes, either over the phone or in person. If they do in person, I would. Say yes, I'll come in. I want you to meet them. I want you to get a feel for them. And I want you to go with the one that you vibe with the most. Unfortunately, it takes us some time to find someone who's a good fit who gets us. And the fact that it was an eating disorder dietitian that was helpful makes me think you might want to find an eating disorder therapist because the traumatic childhood, bulimia, depression, that I mean, like that's those all kind of go together. We had trauma, therefore we have bulimia to cope. We have depression because of the trauma and anxiety because of the trauma. And then I'm suicidal because of all of the above, right? So um, I think an eating disorder therapist should be your best bet. If you are able to do inpatient of any kind, like even IOP, where we go for a few hours each day, you could look into an eating disorder treatment center. I think all of that could be incredibly, incredibly helpful. And that's really my encouragement. Do the consultations, see some more therapists till you feel a click. I'd probably look for an eating disorder specialist. Um, If there's a treatment center you can go to and you can take some of that time, I would encourage you to do that strongly. Okay especially because they'll keep you safe too. If you've been severely suicidal for the past three years, um, being in an inpatient facility means that you're safe and that they'll, you know, so we don't get 5150, we're already getting treatment. And I think a lot of that deep work could really, really help and move things along more quickly. You know, taking a month off from things or two months off from things could end up really saving you in the end. Okay. Now there's another add-on. It says, adding to the topic of childhood trauma, if a child tends to be acting like an adult, not liking games, not wanting to go to recess, but rather talking to teachers or helping younger siblings with homework and learning and consoling them, is this a sign of is this a sign for trauma or giftedness or something completely different? Okay, I'll tell you what. It's not. It's not giftedness. This is either trauma or being a parentified child. Um, it it also sometimes happens randomly with like. Only children whose parents never socialize them. So they don't actually understand or know how to engage with children their own age. Those are the ways that I see this coming to fruition. But I think the most common would be the parentified child or the trauma. Um, But the trauma, when we don't like games or don't want to go to recess, it could be because we were bullied severely by a sibling, by other kids in another school. It could be because we were never allowed to act like a kid in our home because of abuse. Right, we got punished and harmed in some way. Um, if we played games or left our games out or wanted to run around, you know, think we were never allowed to be a kid. Um, it could come from all of those places. It's not giftedness. Uh, children who are gifted might have different interests. Like for instance, we had some. We had a gifted program in my school, and. Some of those kids would prefer to play different games, things like chess or uh because everybody was playing pogs, I think it was when I was growing up. And they would wouldn't want to play that. They want to play different things, right? And they sometimes would do the inside recess stuff. They had like these little tables kind of under this awning, like right inside the this door. It was kind of like a half wall. They would sit in there, play different games. Um, or they'd sit off to the side and read. Th- that's different, right? What we find engaging is different but this not liking games, not wanting to go to recess, wanting to talk to teachers. I think they might be being bullied possibly. Um, So again, trauma, I don't believe it's that. So that's really where I would think that comes from. So speak up and reach out to that that child because they're probably looking for someone to listen. Okay. Final question. Question number eight says, moin everyone and hello. How do you deal with the loss of therapy because you made a horribly wrong decision? So the fault is on you. I just got kicked out of an inpatient program because they think that I tried to take my own life. They were, uh, they were wrong and some of them believed me. So I'm allowed to come back in two months. Update on, okay. So they think you did. So you didn't try, but you think they did. So they were wrong. So you didn't do anything wrong right? Just making sure I'm getting all the facts straight. Um, So I'm allowed to come back in two months. Update on that. They just wrote to me to tell me that some of their staff is still having a hard time with the incident. So it will be next year um, and they should get their own therapist. Okay. It's really hard to manage the guilt and shame around the incident. I'm also filled with a lot of anger because the clinic was supposed to be my new start. I'm supposed to learn how to manage my BPD and how to live my life like a normal person. Now I'm maybe not able to get through university this year. And I feel like I've lost my whole future to this. Obviously that's not the case, but it just feels like it. That's okay. It feels like it. So it's real, right? My question is, how do I manage in the meantime? And how do I forgive myself and my treatment team? I tried logic and it didn't work. Logic often doesn't work. Also, they didn't let me pack my own stuff. So they did it for me and they touched my things. I had little or no privacy um, growing up due to my father insisting on being able to go everywhere in his house at any time and looking through everything in his house. That's so interesting. I was able to fight for some privacy and after years of a battle, I'm now able to lock some doors in the house. Because of all this, I'm extremely sensitive when it gets to my things and other people touching them without my permission. Of course, it's like a trauma response. It feels like they went through my soul and I'm super ashamed, angry, and betrayed. When I'm back in there, how do I forgive them and trust them again? And how do I not lock everything away in my room? Sorry, this is so long, but I just don't know what to do. The true answer for this is you have to process this for yourself. I don't know if that's through journaling or if you can see a therapist On the outside before you go back in, but we need to process what happened. Um, I encourage you to write out what you remember happening and what they told you and what you're frustrated about and how them touching your things was so invasive and felt really uh, icky to you. It was like triggering, right? I want you to process all this, write this. If you have questions that you want to ask them, write them in your journal and come up with an answer or don't. We can pose questions that we want answered later. But I'd encourage you to give yourself an opportunity to process this out versus feeling like, you know, I just have to go back and I have to wait this amount of time. And how, how am I supposed to go back when I don't like that they touch my things? We have to process it. So like I said, if you have a few months, it said so if you can get into therapy in the interim, maybe online, even like through the better help, I have links in my description or Talkspace, or whatever's available in your area. I would encourage you to do that. But the very least start journaling about this so, so much now, because you said you have BPD, I would encourage you to not necessarily keep your journals if they're really painful for you. Because sometimes when we have BPD, just in my experience with my patients, we can kind of want to self injure, quote unquote, self injure, with past journals, and we'll go back and read them just to hurt ourselves. And so if you find yourself in that camp, please destroy them. So give yourself an opportunity to talk it through, to uh, consider all the things that happened, to pose questions, let yourself work through it. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to go back and feel like we can open up at all. And you're going to want to lock everything away in your room and you're not going to feel like you can trust them. And these can be things that we can continue to process through when we get back into treatment. That's why getting a therapist now, if you're able, would be great. But a lot happened, right? They thought that you tried to take your own life. You you said you didn't, they were wrong. They're upset. You're upset. They touched all your things. You hated that. In order to be able to go back and work on things, we're going to have to start doing the work now. So talk it out with yourself, journal it out, talk it out with anybody who will listen. If you have a good friend who's really you know caring, walk through it with them. Talk about what's going on and what happened and how how upset you are. Um, if you need support, we have our community. We're over on Patreon. Um, you know, there's comments and stuff like that. We have a Facebook group, the Katie Facebook group. Those are all places too to kind of vent and talk it out so that you can feel a little bit better and work toward that forgiveness. Forgiveness takes time for ourselves, for other people, but we need to make sure we're aware of what we're telling ourselves about the situation. And that's where journaling is going to come in. And yes, if it's extremely negative, we're going to want to use some of those bridge statements. We're going to, like, like you said, they were wrong. I didn't try to take my own life. So like, I don't, you know, that's not really fair what happened. So we need to, you know, talk back to that a little bit so that we can turn it into a more helpful conversation. Okay. Thank you all so much for sending in your questions. Like I said, if you have other questions you'd like to get answered, you can hop over to my Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash Katie Morton and check that out. Have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week. Do your homework and I'll see you next time. Bye.